Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. In the fall of 1962, Tensions between the Soviet Union and the United States filled the air so much that if you ask most Americans during that time period, they felt nuclear war wasn't just probable, it was inevitable. It was on October 22, 1962, that former President JFK told the world that the Soviets were building secret missile bases in Cuba, about 90 miles off the coast of Florida. And not only did he make claims to that, he had photographic evidence to prove it. So for the next 13 days, the world held its breath. The Americans and Soviets began the nose-to-nose confrontation over these bases stationed in Cuba. With the repercussions of a nuclear war, no one would be able to avoid the aftermath of rash decisions or someone deciding on a motion when to hit the red nuclear launch button. So while a diplomatic solution was ultimately the goal, and as our U.S. government tirelessly tried to pursue that, No one knew what was really taking place inside the Soviet submarine B-59 off the coast of Florida, and how one man, who was actually on our enemy's side, saved the world from nuclear war. Hi, and welcome back to the Missing Chapter podcast. I'm Phil Horner here with Phil Schaff. We are in season two of the Missing Chapter podcast, which seems pretty hard to believe, Phil. Um, last year was such a great year for us, despite every um, you know obstacle that we had as teachers. And I think this year there's a sense of renewed optimism. Mm-hmm. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to continue uh, with the momentum that we had through the podcast and enjoying you know a good discussion along with a good uh, cup of coffee. We're going to keep that going for you guys um, at home. And speaking of coffee, we have some Utica Roasting Company brewing behind us. It's blueberry pancake, which I know last season we had Adirondack blueberry. So I was wondering if there'd be any, you know, difference between the two. And there is. I think the blueberry pancake's a little bit sweeter. The aroma still very, you know, recognizable. Uh, but we're enjoying that today. And I know you have a good story for us planned here, Phil. Yeah. And I think this is a topic that we may not have covered in season one. And uh, this is a story that um, I, I've seen bits and pieces of, and there's a connection to uh, pretty close to present day, which I think is going to be uh, quite interesting, which we'll mention later on in the podcast. Um, but today we're talking Cuban Missile Crisis, which you probably figured out in the intro. Now, of course, there's there's a lot that goes into the Cold War, the tensions, of course, between the Soviet Union and the United States. We're at the point now where JFK, of course, has placed a strict blockade in Cuba. So that's the that's the moment of time that we're focusing in on today. And there's a part of this story that I was pretty unaware of. And I'm shocked that this is not uh, more well-known than it is. Because we have an individual who essentially saved the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and he might not be who you think he is. Okay? So let's let's start with the story. JFK placing a strict blockade. Uh, naval blockade in Cuba. Okay. So at that point, almost immediately after, there were four Soviet submarines sent on a mission known only to a few select uh, Communist Party officials. Okay. So they were sent on a mission 
and uh, they were given orders to set sail, but they would never receive their actual mission until they were at sea. Okay. So you've got to think to yourself, however many people are in this, in this vessel, not really knowing exactly what they're doing. The only orders they have get in the sub, you know, you're going to be on a mission. You'll get your orders uh, when you're out there, which is got to be terrifying. Right. And whether you're a Soviet soldier or, you know, someone in the United States military, you know, your orders are everything and you're going to be taking orders and, you know, you don't question authority, certainly not in the military and you do exactly as you're told. And I'm thinking as a Navy soldier who's obviously there's, there's gotta be some, there's gotta be a level of uh, mental preparation involved, especially going into a submarine. I mean, I'm 6'6", so thinking of going into a submarine terrifies me. A person with like claustrophobia, you have to be like gifted for this, right. you know. But even so, even if you you know you're gifted to be in a naval submarine, it, there's got to be a level of kind of just anticipating mentally what you're about to go through, and you have no idea. Right, Phil, and like you said, I mean, this is during the height of the Cold War and the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, Nikita Khrushchev has placed short-range nuclear missiles on the island of Cuba. JFK has responded with the blockade. And, I'm, you know, people in the United States and people in the Soviet Union are, are pretty much assuming this is it. Right. This is, you know, doomsday, what we have feared. So if I'm in one of these nuclear submarines, whether it's Soviet or United States, you're on the front lines and you're assuming at any moment you could be the one, you know, launching this missile and, and setting forth this domino effect that could ultimately destroy both countries. Yeah, it's well said, because, I mean, we, we've talked about this when we, we discussed this with our classes is that our parents vividly remember the Cold War and that tension, that feeling that it wasn't just like, yeah, I think it's it's probably going to happen. As we said in the intro, it was like imminent. This right. is, it's when it's going to happen, not if. So we have these four submarines that have left their base, uh, the secret base in the Arctic Circle. They're traveling about 7,000 miles across the Atlantic to be at the time permanently stationed uh, in Mariel, Cuba. All right, That was their mission once they got... Um, in their seven mile, seven thousand mile trip, that's when they got the word that, of course, they're going to be permanently stationed there uh, in Cuba. Now, of course, they would have to make trips back and forth, but at that point, uh, they didn't think they were coming back because they will be stationed there just in case something happened. But more on that mission in a minute. So you got to think as if tensions weren't already high. The commanders of each submarine themselves were given direct orders that they had permission to act according to their own judgment without even receiving direct orders from Moscow. So essentially, it's a fire at will command. All right, so the only prerequisite for that though, for firing, was if they felt they were under threat. All right, so here's where I gotta pause for a second. Once I read this, that if they felt under threat, they could fire um, you know, whatever they had on board. That to me is more of like a green light approach than it is a cautionary suggestion from Moscow, because let's face it, like you're at the height of the Cold War, Everybody feels like they're under threat. Right. And and immediately I'm thinking, Phil, you're you're placing in the hands this power of people who are in the military. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a certain military mindset as opposed to a politician. That's a great point. I think politicians look to negotiate first, whereas military generals and people in the higher ranks, that might not always be mm. the case. Yeah. So if you're now saying here's the green light to people whose job it is to wage wars and win wars. Mm-hmm. And, and you also have the emotional aspect of it too, because the tensions are so high. So I know personally, if I'm ever tense, 
those probably the, those moments are, are probably the worst times to ever make decisions, especially, you know, decision like this. So you're going to see that in, in these moments uh, with these four submarines coming off the coast of Cuba, uh, yeah, there's going to be tension so high that it could increase this decision factor uh, even higher than it already is. Right. And knowing what we know now in 2021, I mean, we had the ability to, to kind of go back and, and know all this information that they obviously weren't privy to at the moment. But that blockade, I mean, JFK on the other side of this is saying, listen, nothing goes through this blockade. Right. Nothing is to go through this blockade. So both sides have pretty much given that order stand and stand firm. And to bring up a, a present day word that we hear all the time is quarantine. That's right. what JFK referred to this blockade as. And I, as I'm doing more research, I'm thinking to myself, okay, so there's four submarines on a secret mission. Uh, the Americans are already swarming Cuba. So now you have these submarines who are obviously underneath the water, sneaking up on American warships. And we had no idea, at least not immediately. So let's say they did come up, come upon an American submarine. What kind of weaponry did they have? Mm -hmm. The Soviets, remember, they were told to fire at will. It would, I mean, what did they have just regular torpedoes? They did. But they also had what's called a special weapon. And now that we know with some of these, uh, these documents uh, about really what happened on that nuclear submarine, it was, in fact, a single nuclear torpedo. So each one of the four submarines' mission was to get there. And in case something happened on land or at sea, they had this special weapon that they could fire at any given moment. So not only did we have you know, Khrushchev's missiles in Cuba, we also had four nuclear torpedoes. Uh, in these submarines, which I never knew. And I don't and that, think the and vast that's terrifying. Of yeah. Right. And it's, you know, again, you go back and you look at what the average American citizen is probably worried about at this point. And it's their, their fears are being recognized with the information that you're, you're telling us now that it was probably worse than they'd known, you know, in the 1960s. And I, I think we get, we need to address this too. The re, one of the reasons why I called it the special weapon is because this isn't just like a singular, you know, typical torpedo. It's nuclear and it's ready for this compared to the strength of the bomb that dropped on, on Hiroshima. All right. So it's a 10 kiloton nuclear uh, missile, essentially. All right. But there was a second caveat, though. Okay. The torpedo could be fired, remember, if they felt that they were in danger, but only if the submarine captain and political officer were in agreement. All right. So there, you have to have both officials on the vessel agree in order to turn the nuclear key. OK. Now, Phil, let me ask you this. Yeah. And I, again, I don't want to get too far ahead. I, maybe you're going to address this later on in the story. You mentioned how people under very um, kind of tense situations might make rash or irrational decisions. Yep. Why the two commanders then? Is it to avoid someone making a decision um, without the proper knowledge or, or doing something that's irrational? I, 100%. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the reasons. Now, speaking from U.S. perspective, without a doubt, from the Soviet perspective, I would assume that. Um, and I think they're, they're also just assuming chain of command. Okay. You know, but um, I thank God they did have that. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Because uh, a, a typical person studying the Soviet Union during that time period, I wouldn't guess that they would have that because they're very authoritarian. And I would assume that they would just give power over to that one person without... The, the part that shocked me is that they wouldn't need permission from Moscow, That's which that kind of right. that kind of shocked me. 
Um, but there was a man who was interviewed interviewed in the PBS series called The Man Who Saved the World. His name is Ryorik Kitov. He uh, commanded one of the four submarines. He said in this P- PBS interview, quote, I had a written order that I could release it, it being, of course, the, the nuclear torpedo. And if there was an order to fire the torpedo, I would do it without a second thought. For the first time in life, a commander of a submarine had a nuclear weapon and had the authority to fire the missile at his command, end quote. So remember, they they were just ordered to go there, and then they would receive their mission. But their mission was to be just a presence in Cuba, but they had to be an incognito presence. They didn't want to be, you know, show force. They didn't want to increase the tensions anymore, but they wanted to be there just in case. And then you read that quote, and you're thinking to yourself, this, this seems more aggressive than it seems to be an incognito uh, mission. And I think it goes back to the point that you made where it's this isn't just a politician coming to the table. This is a military, four military submarines filled with nuclear weapons and, of course, other weapons uh, approaching, I think it was around 11 or 12 uh, warships, American warships, at the height of the Cold War. And, you know, from the general's perspective, you really have two options. Are you going to be the one responsible for initiating a nuclear right. holocaust? Or will you appear weak in the eyes of your opponent? Yeah. Which in many respects, I'm I'm sure they want to avoid that as well. That's a great So point. is there a third option? We'll have to wait and see. So here's what they have to do. Their mission was, okay, once again, be a presence in Cuba, but more as a backup. We want you to be incognito, as I said. They're, they're supposed to stop just short of the American warships in the Caribbean. And so they wouldn't really encourage an interaction between the two forces. Um, and to be there as once again as a backup in case something did break out on land or in the sea, they would be within reach uh, of a counterattack. But there was a major problem. One of those four vessels failed their mission because they were spotted by the, one of the American warships. So you have four Soviet submarines, one of which has been spotted. They dive deep to conceal their presence after being spotted and were now cut off from communication with the surface. So they're, they're without uh, communication from Moscow. But once again, they don't really need to be in communication with Moscow to give, you know, to receive orders to fire a nuclear torpedo. They've already given that order. So here's what the American forces decide to do. In an attempt to force the B-59 to the surface, it was common practice uh, that the U.S. would begin dropping low explosive, non-lethal depth charges the size of about hand grenades. Um, And it's basically what they use in practice missions. So it really wouldn't damage anything. It wouldn't really, uh, once again, non-lethal. It wouldn't kill the the men on the submarine. But you got to think in this tense situation, if you're one of the Soviet uh, soldiers inside and hearing these depth charges take place outside, there's a lot going through your head. Um, So then Defense Secretary Robert McNamara said, this would allow, so the the, bomb, the uh, dropping of the, the depth charges would allow American forces to, quote, actually hit the submarine without damaging the submarine, which those aboard the vessel would interpret as, quote, warning notice and the instruction to surface. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, so that's kind of common practice. Like, hey, we, we want to almost scare them into, I wouldn't say submission, but to at least come to the surface and have a conversation and say, listen, what are you doing here? Um, but of course, I think at this point during the Cold War, uh, I don't know if a conversation would actually ensue. But at least at this point, Phil, leveler heads are, are prevailing <clears throat> as opposed to the United States saying, OK, listen, this submarine is here. We didn't expect it to be. 
and we're going to go ahead and initiate the attack either. Yeah. So, I mean, they're, they're dropping these death chart or these non-lethal chart uh, uh, explosives right? Uh, as a warning. Yep. That warning is still a warning. And it, Kennedy, the, the man that he was, he, he, he knew this was what he was supposed to do, but he wasn't a huge fan of this, um, even though he knew that this, this really needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And he didn't see the really the, the big reward with this huge risk because there is a possibility that these depth charges would be mistaken for an actual attack, which I think anybody inside a, a submarine hearing that outside, of course, would assume that. Robert Kennedy actually described uh, it as, quote, the time of greatest worry to the president. And he said that his hand, JFK's hand, went up to his face and he closed his fist. So this was the moment where he, he's like, this, this could be it. Mm -hmm. uh, so what the U.S. Navy didn't realize was that, of course, the B-59 was armed with a 10 kiloton nuclear torpedo. Now, if they had known that, I don't think they, he would have given the order to drop those depth charges. But remember, the B-59 is cut off from communication with the outside world. And, of course, the Soviet sailors were, were incredibly panicked, and they fear they were now under attack. With tension already being beyond high, to make matters even more tense, the air conditioning inside the submarine fails completely. So conditions inside the sub had really deteriorated pretty quickly as the crew became, uh, you know, more fearful and panicked. There was one man on board. Uh, his name was Anatoly Andreev. Wrote in his journal, it says, uh, "Quote: For the last four days, they didn't even let us come up to the periscope depth. My head is bursting from the stuffy air. Today, three sailors fainted from the overheating again. The regeneration of air works poorly. The carbon dioxide content is rising, and the electric power reserves are dropping." Those who are free from their shifts are sitting immobile, staring at one spot. And temperatures inside the sections is above 122 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, this sounds like a recipe for disaster. It You're sure talking does. about intense heat, intense stress, increases in gases that might affect the way that you're, you're thinking and yep. your decision making. And they're completely cut off. Right. So they're also making assumptions based on the information they have that might not be true. Exactly right. And on top of that, remember, these depth charges are, are rocking them from side to side. So here we are. We have a, a guy by the name of Vadim Orloff, uh, who is an intelligence officer on board the B-59 while these depth charges are, are coming forward. And he said it sounded less like a warning than war itself. Uh, he said, quote, they exploded right next to the hull. It felt like you were sitting in a metal barrel, which somebody is constantly blasting with a sledgehammer. We thought that's it, the end. And he said the barrage of explosions and, of course, the climate in the sub prompted the submarine's captain, Vitaly Savitsky, to panic. Now, once the captain panics, it's kind of that, that old montage, like you, you never say, I don't know, as a captain. You never show fear as a captain because once the captain shows fear – then, of course, the entire vessel is going to be fearful as well. Yeah, it's contagious. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, to us in the comfort of our own listening environment here, we're all thinking, guys, come on, it's just a grenade practice depth charges. You know, it's no big deal. But, of course, to them on board, you have 123, 122-degree uh, heat. You have, um, obviously, air conditioning down. You have carbon dioxide elevated um, to, to crazy heights, as well as, uh, you know, the tension of the war itself. These grenades sound like all-out nuclear war. So they're unable to make contact with Moscow for several days. Savitsky, remember the captain, uh, had not been notified that the United States had the intent to employ these practice depth charges as part of its Cuban blockade. So they had no idea. 
So Savitsky, I mean, if you think about it, you have to think of, number one, the people on board, but you also have to think, listen, I'm captain of the Soviet Union. He had no choice but to start the, the launch of the nuclear torpedo. So Savitsky had his men ready the had had his men ready the onboard missile, and he said, "Okay, we're going to ready to aim it at one of the eleven U.S. warships in the blockade." So we're we're at that point already. So number one, I've never heard the story. Number two, I never knew we were this close that they actually readied the torpedo, the nuclear missile, to send into one of the the U.S. warships. Now remember, once one weapon is fired, we fire back, and that could be just on water but the nuclear fallout is something to consider. And then, of course, the chain reaction of military uh, counterattacks w- would ensue afterwards. And I'm interested to see how long of a procedure this is. Yeah. How many steps are there in, it's quite you know, a, yeah. yeah. And fortunately, there were. Yes, Because if this was just simply push a button, we're, we yeah. probably wouldn't be having this story. Exactly right. So he's convinced that an all-out conflict has broken out above above water. So he said... Quote, maybe the war has already started up there while we are doing somersaults here. We're going to blast them now. We will die, but we will sink them all. We will not disgrace our Navy, end quote. So what does he need to do to, to go through with this mission? He needs the permission of his other, other political officer, right? Okay. There's one difference, though. We've already addressed the fact that in order to send off this nuclear weapon, you need both officials on board to agree. The one difference is, though, that with all the other three subs that were there in this submarine aboard the B-59, there were three men, not two, that were needed to be in agreement. There is a 34-year-old man by the name of Vasily Arkhipov, who was commodore of the submarine fleet. And the captain not only needed the political officer's approval, he needed Arkhipov's as well. And it was as commodore... He had the power to veto any firing order, nuclear or not. He was one of the only men who knew about the mission in advance, and apparently the only one impervious to the emotion of the of the moment, too, because he tried mightily to convince the officers of the sub to react, uh, excuse me, to retract their, their firing orders and not react hastily, of course. And it almost came to a full-out mutiny over the argument um, on board the, the submarine. But he did just what his title empowered him to do. He vetoed not just one but two commanders of the ship. So let's put this in perspective. We have two commanders on each of the four Soviet submarines, only one of which feels threatened. And the very submarine that feels threatened is the only one to have a third commander on the sub and was the only one with enough guts to stand up against not one, but two other officers. And if you're thinking divine intervention, so am I, because we are one person one vote and one yes away from World War III. Thanks for listening to and supporting the Missing Chapter podcast. If it sounds like we're having fun and we enjoy bringing you a new episode every week, it's because we are. Not only are we having a good time, but as teachers, producing our own podcast has allowed us to connect with our students like never before. In fact, when people ask us where we got the idea to start our own podcast, we tell them our students. If you're an educator and would like the opportunity to create, produce, and maintain your very own podcast, go to our website, themissingchapterpodcast.com, to learn how we can help make that happen for you. Don't be intimidated. It's easy and fun. Go to themissingchapterpodcast.com to schedule an informative and interactive webinar with us today. 
so that you can get started on your own educational podcast for tomorrow. You'll have a great time doing it, and we'll get the opportunity to work with us directly. Your hosts for the Missing Chapter podcast, Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. You know, Phil, I'm really enjoying this story. Um, we always tell our students the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, from the context of the Cold War is the, co- the, the closest we've come to nuclear war that we at least know of. Mm-hmm. Because we know that within the government and within the military, they were certainly privy to other events going on and, and occurrences where we as the American public have no clue. Right. Just how close we were to, to nuclear war. And and this is exactly what I'm thinking as, as you lay this story out uh, for us. Unbelievably close. And this is one instance. Yeah. But it took, you know, one person to deter the destruction of the entire world. That's pretty amazing. It is. And we were talking during the break. The chances of this occurring these circumstances to one of the other subs that didn't have the third officer that didn't additionally have the officer with this mindset of, you know, not pressing the button. It's, I mean, it wasn't on our side. Exactly. And, and I, one of the reasons why I came up with the, the title nuclear reaction is because, you know, you think of that, those moments where tensions are so high and most people, I would assume would would believe their own emotion and react based on their emotion. And if and if this person did that, I mean our history would be completely different. And I have to admit, um, as I'm as I'm listening to this, I had some preconceived notions that are being proven wrong. Okay. Because I I would have immediately thought that the Soviets would have launched this attack. Yeah. I'm surprised, surprised that someone was as level headed. Because as you study Soviet history and as you study the, the mindset that you talked about earlier on, it was very much follow orders, do not question authority. And you're starting to see a little bit of variance in that, which I, I think that's that's an important piece to this to this story. I, I totally agree. I think if, if you gave this a visual um, of a traffic light, I think the order that, that Moscow gave those four submarines Obviously, was not a red light. Mm-hmm. I don't even think it was a yellow light. It was a total green light approach to say, if you feel threatened, go for it. You have our permission. I, you're you're entrusting those commanders of the ship to make the right decision, and then the one ship, like you mentioned, the one ship of the extra commander, and that commander could have been on any one of those four ships. Mm-hmm. The one ship that has the air conditioning go out, the one ship that gets caught. You know, it, the chances of all this happening and taking place. And then the chances of that one person being on that submarine to say, to have the guts to respectfully and unemotionally say, no, this is the right decision. And I don't care what, what you guys think of me. There could be an all-out mutiny. I'm saying no, and I'm vetoing your orders. Saved the world. Because we don't know the, the nuclear reaction of you know, the rest of the world. Because you have the chain reaction of, of the 11 warships on, uh, that are above the water. Then you have the three other nuclear subs. That are that are underneath the water with, of course, nuclear weapons, and then on top of that, you would have the the ground um, communications saying to each other, "Hey, these these submarines are are attacking U.S. warships." So then our allies get joined up. This could have been this could have been the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously, Arkhipov was right, 
And the, the story goes, the submarine eventually surfaced. Uh, they realized that all-out war had really not actually been taking place above the waters. And they, they turned around. The Americans uh, were obviously at, at high tension levels. They noticed that um, the Soviet submarine was, was making its way away from them, so they didn't really need to fire. There was they were no longer a threat. Um, and those depth charges essentially worked. It was the right decision. And Arkhipov was right as well. But the Americans wouldn't find out until decades later that that very submarine, that B-59 submarine, had actually been carrying a nuclear missile. And I, I think this is interesting because as I was reading this story, I said, gosh, this sounds an awful lot like that Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman movie in the 90s, uh, Crimson Tide, which we talked about. We love that right. movie. You touched on it as one of your top five <laughs> war right. movies. Absolutely. This is actually what the movie's based upon. Um, of course, the, the difference being the, 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 the Soviet submarine uh, is the actual true, true story, whereas the Crimson Tide submarine is, is an American one. But yeah, um, very, very similar. And uh, Arkhipov uh, unfortunately died in 1998 at the age of 72, but he did receive the Future of Life Award. Of course, that was posthumously. Um, and his grandson said he didn't learn the full story of what happened until the year 2000. It was only two years after his grandfather's wow. death. And someone asked him, like, why? what was it like growing up with such a hero? And to quote the, um, the grandson, he said, uh, he never said a word. Arkhipov never, never said a word to his family because it was closed. It was secret information. Hmm. He wasn't allowed to talk about it, he said. Uh, for many years, he was collecting photographs, writing notes, um, writing down his memories. And when the members of the family asked him, why are you doing this? He would always answer, I can't tell you now, but one day you will know. And the president of the Future, Future of Life Institute, who gave this award uh, in 2017, said uh, this about Arkhipov. Vasily Arkhipov is arguably the most important person in modern history, thanks to whom October 27th, 2017, when he received the award, isn't the 55th anniversary of World War III. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, I'm Phil Horander. And I'm Phil Schaff. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.